Well, today is, as the bulletin indicates, Epiphany Sunday. Epiphany means unveiling, and it's where we celebrate the appearance or the manifestation of Christ to the nations, or Christ to the Gentiles. This is set forth in the gospel lesson, which was just read, where magi from the East, Gentiles, come bearing gifts and worshiping the one that they called the king of the Jews. And the New Testament lesson from Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 3, is, is in the lectionary, it's in the readings today, for a very important reason, because that is Paul's inspired commentary, right, on the great mystery of Gentile inclusion in the one people of God. And then the Old Testament text from Psalm 72, which is our sermon text, that text is a prophecy of this manifestation to the Gentiles. And it shows you, Psalm 72 does, the scope, the extent of the glory which this epiphany is destined to attain. So Psalm 72 is the text. This is one of only two psalms attributed to Solomon. And it's probably a royal enthronement psalm, meaning it was composed for his coronation, or perhaps it was used on anniversaries of his accession to power. And if you read Psalm 72, you'll notice that certain features of Solomon's reign are in view. right? And that's true, but the text is also, as we shall see, clearly, clearly, it's a prophecy of the one greater than Solomon, Jesus, the universal king. So we'll look at the text under five headings. They're there in your bulletin. They're on page five. I borrow these headings from the Old Testament scholar Derek Kidner because I don't think there's better, a better way to outline the psalm. But the first, the first heading is uh, royal righteousness. So Psalm 72, verse 1, Endow or give the king your justice, O God, the royal son, endow him or give him your righteousness. So it is God's own justice, God's own righteousness, which are being prayed for here. Righteousness and justice are mentioned four times in the first two verses. They are the first principles of all sound government. Righteousness and justice of all just kingly rule. And, and notice here that Solomon is both the king and he's the royal son. That is, he's the son of David. Right? We looked at this last week extensively, just as Jesus is also the king and the son of David. And this kingly righteousness is described in verse 2. It says, he will or may he, it depends on your translation here, there's a debate about whether all of these petitions are prayers, like may he do this, may he do that, may he do that, or whether it's more of a prophecy, like he will do this, he will do that, he will do this. I don't think it matters in the end, even if it's a prayer, it's a prophetic prayer. But if you're looking in your Bible and you're confused, that's what's going on there. So it's he will judge your people in righteousness, and your afflicted ones, your poor, with justice. So the the righteousness of the king 
is to be exercised on behalf of God's people. They are God's poor, his afflicted ones. Of this coming messianic king, Isaiah chapter 11 says, With righteousness he shall judge the poor. He shall decide with equity for the meek of the earth. This is definitive judgment. Now, King Jesus does judge now. But it is clear from the New Testament that definitive, final, global judgment, right? The establishment of unstained justice and the full vindication of the poor, that lies in the future. It's held in abeyance, the final judgment, so that the day of salvation, the free preaching of the gospel can go forth. We're waiting for the time when Jesus takes or sits on his throne to judge the nations. When he comes, as the psalmist says, when he appears to judge the world with equity. Now, notice in the text that under this king, so the first thing he does is he vindicates the poor. The next thing we see is that he transforms the creation so that the creation itself will be at peace and will be an instrument of nothing but unstinted blessing to people. You can see that in verse 3. The mountains will bring prosperity or peace to the people. The hills bring righteousness. So you're looking at an era, a time here where righteousness and peace kiss and the land itself bears witness. So the messianic king will render judgment for the poor and when he does so, he will restore the creation to Eden-like, even escalated, better-than-Eden conditions. The scope of this is vast. Because salvation is always about God, right, and the human person, God and man, and the creation. God is bringing about a new creation in Jesus Christ. So look at verse 4. It continues. He will defend the afflicted and save the children of the needy, the weakest of the weak. He will crush the oppressor. Divine righteousness is acutely concerned, acutely concerned with the plight of the poor. Now, that might seem like a truism, but it is something I think that has to be captured in however we're going to flesh that out in our earthly politics. Divine righteousness is acutely concerned with the plight of the poor, with their defense and their deliverance. Righteousness is virtually defined in this first section of the psalm as judging the poor with justice. Now, this does not mean that righteousness or divine justice is not impartial. Right? It doesn't mean that. But it does recognize that we're in principle... Right? Where in principle, the law is no respecter of persons, and all men are equal before the law. Right? The psalmist recognizes that nonetheless, the rich have ways of becoming more equal than others. Lots of ways. Superior lawyers, bribable judges, legal loopholes, even the best legal systems favor the rich and powerful. However, with this king, the cause of the poor is always upheld. Justice is always done. The weak are never exploited. This is no merely human law court. This is a court where the king himself sits in judgment and administers perfect, regal, royal justice. 
And this means that this king will, the, the psalm says, crush oppression. There's no getting around this. Divine justice entails ruling, as Psalm 2 says, with a rod of iron. And this divine righteousness, call it remedial holy force. It's a kind of holy coercion to rectify the violence and disorder of the world that ushers in this peaceable kingdom. And we pray for this. We pray for this defense of the poor, for this deliverance of the children of the needy, for this crushing of the oppressor when we pray, thy kingdom come. When we pray, deliver us from evil. Right? To pray that prayer is to pray for the barrier between heaven and earth to be torn and for the will of God to be done on the earth just as it is done in heaven. That is royal righteousness. And that's what Peter says we're waiting for. A new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So the second point is the endless reign. So there's this regal royal righteousness which this king brings. And then his reign is endless. You can see this in verse 5. He will endure, or he'll be feared in some translations, as long as the sun, as long as the moon, through all generations. Now think about this, right? If this was, you know, merely applied to Solomon, right, it would be the language of courtly extravagance, right? You would say to the king, may you live forever, O king. And everybody knows it's hyperbole. Right? But applied to the greater Solomon, we can take the language with full seriousness. This is a prophecy, then, of the enduring everlasting reign. Right? A duration that moves beyond Israel's earthly king or any human dynasty. Right? The other side, the other side of ruling with a rod of iron, is that in verse 6, <clears throat> the just king is like <clears throat> refreshing and rejuvenating rain that falls on mown grass like showers that water the earth. It's a beautiful picture of the gentle, refreshing presence of the king. Even Solomon, who this psalm is about, even Solomon, in all of his glory, was not arrayed like one lily of the field. And here, right, it's a picture of the kingly waters of the spirit sent from the greater Solomon arraying his people and arraying their land with glory. This king creates the conditions for endless flourishing. Verse 7, in his days, the righteous will flourish and prosperity or peace will abound till the moon is no more. Right? It's, it's a picture of the everlasting peace and the eternal prosperity of the saints in a healed and restored cosmos. Right? The, the glory of God, I love this quotation. I, I know you've heard it from me before, but the second century father Irenaeus said, the glory of God is the human person fully alive. Right? The glory of, there's no competition between God blessing and endowing his people with glory and splendor and his own glory. Right? When God says, I, I do not give my glory to another, that means I do not give my glory to another God. I do, in fact, give my glory to my people. That's what glorification's about. 
Glorification is what Irenaeus was after when he said the glory of God is the human person fully alive. Meaning flourishing in peace, in wholeness, in shalom. God then, when you read a psalm like this, you realize this. God then is the true humanist. He's the great philanthropist, the great lover of men. He is the one who loves creatures, all creatures, but especially human creatures. So our third point then is his boundless realm. Verse 8. So we're moving here from duration, duration of reign, to the sort of geographic extent of the Messiah's reign. He will have dominion, or he will rule from sea to sea, and from the river, that is the Euphrates, to the ends of the earth. Right, The global dominion, which Adam was to have exercised. The dominion which Solomon, on a regional scale, did exercise, is now the universal empire of the righteous king. Now, Hebrews tells us, we do not yet see in this age all things subjected to him, but we do see Jesus. His kingdom, his dominion, is even now bearing fruit, growing, expanding through the earth. And in verse 9, we're told the desert tribes will bow before him. His enemies will lick the dust. Now, here you can see that the geography is from Solomon's time, right? Independent, hostile tribes east of the, in the desert east of the Jordan River are in view. And if they won't bow down freely, they shall, like the serpent, lick the dust. And in verse 10, the kings of Tarshish, probably a western city on the Mediterranean over by Spain. We don't know for sure. But the point is is this, not only tribes from the east and kings from the far west, but the text says coastlands and islands and distant shores, the ends of the earth will come to render tribute to the king. Again, originally spoken of Solomon, but Solomon here is a type of Jesus Christ who will get universal homage from the ends of the earth. The text continues, the kings of Sheba and Seba, two southern Arabian tribes, probably from what is today Yemen, right? They will present him gifts. And you'll remember, right? Solomon himself received a visit and tribute from the queen of Sheba. You know, the, the, uh, the hymn we sang, the opening hymn we sang this morning has a lot more verses, or at least a handful more verses, than are in the Trinity hymnal. One of the verses goes like this. That this is a verse that's not in the hymnal. Arabia's desert ranger, to him shall bow the knee. The Ethiopian stranger, his glory come to see. With offerings of devotion, ships from the isles shall meet. To pour the wealth of ocean in tribute as his feet. That's capturing this portion of the psalm that we're in right now. That verse. Now back to Psalm 72, verse 11 summarizes. All kings will bow down to him. All nations will serve him. Total international homage is envisioned. And of course, we know this was not the case with Solomon, right? Right. Even after a bright beginning, he quickly declined. Something greater than Solomon is in view, namely the reign of Christ, 
now inaugurated in the church as she gathers the elect from every nation into the holy nation, the kingdom of priests. Listen to John describe the outcome of this process. In Revelation chapter 7, verse 9, very famous text, he says this, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and all peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. That's the nations streaming in. That's the whole church worshiping God and glory. And this part of the text about the nation streaming, all kings, all nations, is especially appropriate for Epiphany. Right? Psalm 72 is an Epiphany psalm. It's a standard reading for Epiphany Sunday. In the coming of the Gentile Magi from the Far East, Psalm 72 moves into its final phase of fulfillment. But that's the point. In the coming of the Gentile Magi from the Far East, this psalm moves into its final phase of fulfillment. A fulfillment, as I said, which is happening even now. And it shall end when the kings of the earth bring their glory into the new Jerusalem. In the eschaton. We see this after the final judgment in Revelation 21. Again, Revelation 21, John describes the scene that our text is pointing us to. All death, all tears, all pain are past. And then John sees the city of God and he says this. By its light, by its light, because there's no sun or moon, by its light will the nations walk. Meaning the nations walk by the light of the immediate glory of the face of God. And they will bring their glory into it. That's an allusion to Psalm 72 right there. That's Revelation 21 alluding back to this psalm. And its gates will never be shut by day, and there'll be no night there. And they will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. But, John continues, nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. All the redeemed from all the nations. Then and there, according to the New Testament interpretation of this text, all kings shall bow, all nations will serve the Lord. So the fourth point then here is the compassion of this king. Verse 12 says, He will deliver the needy who cry out, the afflicted who have no helper. It's, again, important to note this, because I think it could be counterintuitive, perhaps. It is primarily his tender defense of the helpless, which facilitates and wins for the messianic king global admiration and submission. He will deliver the needy who cry out, the afflicted who have no helper. Right? The, the, the hymn, Lead On, O King Eternal, has these lines in it. For not with swords loud clashing, nor roll of stirring drums, but deeds of love and mercy, the heavenly kingdom comes. Love and mercy bring the kingdom. And that means that while righteousness and justice are the first principles of kingship, 
They must never be divorced from or set against compassion. Verse 13 puts it this way. He will take pity. He will take pity. That is, he will have paternal solicitude on the weak and the needy. You know, to say that pity and compassion have no place in the administration of justice is to slander the messianic king. If earthly kings are to imitate the messianic king, and they are, then pity and compassion for the poor is a fundamental feature of human kingship. And this pity means that the lives, right, the concrete physical existence of the suffering poor are an urgent divine concern. He saves, notice the text says, he saves not the souls just, but the lives of the needy. Verse 14, he rescues them from oppression and violence, and their blood is precious in his sight. Now, ultimately, of course, this points to the resurrection and the vindication of the martyrs. In his name, all oppression shall cease, all bloodshed shall be justly avenged. Think of Solomon, right? He made the yoke of his subjects heavy with taxation and labor. Jesus comes to make the yoke of the righteous poor light, that their lives may flourish. Right in John's gospel, I came that they might have life and they might have it abundantly. God is the great philanthropist. The last point is endless blessing. Verse 15 says, long may he live. Long may he live. Again, the sentiment could be a relatively harmless piece of courtesy. Again, like live forever, O king. But in the context of the everlasting reign, it points to the endless kingship of Christ. May gold, may, may gold of Sheba be given to him. The gold which Solomon received, right, from the queen of Sheba, points ahead to the gold brought by the Magi from the east. Right? The gold which Solomon received from the queen of Sheba points to the gold brought by the Magi from the east. And the Magi's gifts point to the nations bringing all their glory into the kingdom of God. That's the thread here. The Magi's gifts were, in effect, coronation gifts for the one they called the king of the Jews. But who, by their very worship as Gentiles, indicates he is also the king of all nations. So in verse 16, the blessings of this reign come into view. Or more blessings, we might say. Let grain abound throughout the land on the tops of the hills. Right, the tops of the hills, a place of most unpromising soil. You're talking about a super abundant earthly fertility. Again, this is prophetic idiom for a restored creation, a renewed Eden. Let grain sway in the places where it normally wouldn't grow and let it do so abundantly. Let its fruit flourish like Lebanon. Let it thrive like grass in the field. Right? Rich harvests, images drawn from Israel's life, here depict the eternal well-being of the realm of the king. Finally, 
Verse 17, may his name endure forever and may it continue as long as the sun. This is what we looked at last week. This is the everlasting Davidic dynasty, which has now been established in Christ. The king's name and the king's fame are eternal. As long as the sun, he has no successors to the throne. I don't know if you caught that. We sang this morning, the tide of time shall never his covenant remove. And when finally there is no moon or sun, the glory of God and the Lamb will light the eternal city of God in the new heavens and in the new earth. And just when you thought this psalm could not maybe pack more blessedness into it, in verse 17, right at the end, it's important to notice this. These blessings are put in distinctly Abrahamic terms. May the people be blessed in him and all nations call him blessed. In Genesis 12, right, God promised Abraham that all the nations of the earth would be blessed through his seed. It's a promise predating Israel's national history, and it indicates that God always intended to bless all the nations. And Paul tells us, Paul tells us that Christ is the seed of Abraham to whom that Abrahamic promise belongs. You might say, what does all this have to do with our text? Well, all nations being blessed in Christ... Paul tells us what that means in Galatians 3. It means elect Gentiles gathered from the nations will be justified by faith. We have Paul's interpretation of what it means for all the nations to be blessed in Christ. It's in Galatians chapter 3. And in Matthew's gospel text, right, the text we read this morning, that blessing of the nations begins. The Magi are the very first people, Gentile people, blessed in Christ. The first to call him blessed to acknowledge his epiphany. So the promises here of Davidic kingship are rooted further back in the promise to Abraham, which are fulfilled in Jesus Christ. This psalm is a wonderful place to see that all the promises of God, be they Davidic promises, be they Solomonic promises, be they promises related to Israel's theocracy, be they Abrahamic promises, they are yea and amen in Jesus Christ, who is the Messianic king. And there's this promise or prayer at the end in verse 19 that the whole earth would be filled with the glory of God. The whole hymn is bent toward this, right? Toward the, toward the day when Christ in his heavenly splendor descends. Right? This glory here is not... Um, you know, it's, it's not God being glorified through people, per se. It's a property of God. When we speak of the whole earth being full of the glory of God, we mean the intrinsic attribute of God, which is his radiance and his splendor and his glory, will light up the whole creation. Right? We'll see the face of God. This happens when the new Jerusalem, the heavenly Zion, comes down out of heaven from God, and the immediate presence of God irradiates the whole cosmos. And the glory of God will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. This is the glory of Epiphany. The glory which is already underway and has been underway in the church in her proclamation of the gospel. And the glory which is to come when Christ appears. Begun with the Magi. 
continuing in the mission of the church and ending with all kings and all nations flowing into the city of God and with the glory of God, his radiance covering the earth as the waters cover the sea. It's an expansive, vast, total, comprehensive vision. Christ the King has come, and light has shone forth to the nations. Walk then, rejoicing in the light of the Lord. Amen.